Amen. Well, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter number 17 this morning. Matthew chapter number 17. Uh, We are entering into a a rather uh, difficult portion of Scripture. Uh, Not that it cannot be understood. uh, Not that we cannot have an understanding of the intents and the purposes here. But it nevertheless is a very difficult passage. Uh, It's difficult because there are many varying views upon what is actually happening here. Uh, We are going to take this in a manner that is uh, most uh, true and literal to the text that's right in front of us. Uh, We will not necessarily cover every aspect of every verse, Uh, not that it's not important, but we are going to view this uh, more from an overview as to what is taking place. I, be, I believe that in this account of the transfiguration of Christ, uh, there are sermons after sermon that could be contained in each verse. Uh, there are so many things that are happening before us, uh, but I want us to, I believe, get to uh, the very crux of, of uh, the conclusion, if you will, uh, of what I believe the Lord had in mind by giving us this text. Uh, if you would look with me at Mark uh, chapter or uh, Matthew 17 verse number five, it says, "While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him." Now, as we look at these verses, uh, primarily in verses 1 through 13, we've been looking at the passages in Matthew 16 that have been leading us up to Jesus Christ himself bringing his disciples to a knowledge and a confession of his deity and, of course, of his uh, being the Messiah. We read how Peter, uh, especially in Matthew 16, was brought to a confession of faith. He was brought to declare about Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is continuing to prepare them for his purpose in coming into this world. He's continuing to prepare them for the suffering and the death he must endure. Uh, We learned back in Matthew 16 in verse 21 that from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem, suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. Of course, we know that Peter, so soon after his confession, takes Jesus and rebukes him, saying, Lord, let not these things be so. So we cannot disconnect what's happening in Matthew 17 in this transfiguration from the events and the teaching that Jesus gave leading up to Matthew 17. In other words, we can't just suddenly say, we've turned the page, here's something brand new, Uh, let's examine it from that perspective. This is building contextually upon what we've learned up to this point. Jesus said his suffering and death must come to pass. With that being said, we also know that as this unfolds in Matthew, we also see that Jesus will begin to talk about not only his suffering, his death, but his resurrection from the dead. 
He'll begin to explain to them his ascension into glory. And he'll also begin to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is found in Matthew 24. All of these events have to be taken in context with this transfiguration. All these things that are getting ready to happen and do happen confirm that Jesus Christ's atoning work and the redemption of his people would be fulfilled and the kingdom of God would in fact come with power. There is not going to be a kingdom until these events come. These events are not far off. That's what Jesus is now beginning to unveil to them now even more completely. Remember at the end of verse 16, or the end of chapter 17, that Jesus made mention that there were some who would not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now again, there's a lot of events that unfold. There's a lot of different viewpoints on what exactly did Jesus mean, which event was he talking about. And you and I could talk for hours upon different viewpoints. Good men disagree on whether or not verses 27 and 28 are the coming in Jesus, a second coming, or they're talking about events that are getting ready to happen, especially with regard to the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24. I don't think it's exclusively has to be one way or the other. I believe all of these events are in view because they are unfolded as we continue to expound Matthew throughout the the book. So we're taking the position this morning, or rather I'm taking the position of looking at this from Jesus's overall purpose in what is unfolding before their eyes. Now, again, as I mentioned, the transfiguration of Christ, if if you were to go home and I would say, be careful in doing this, not that I am the purveyor and the only possessor of truth. I would never tell you that it's my way or no way, but I'm telling you, you will get hundreds of viewpoints as to what the transfiguration is, what we're supposed to learn from it. You will find men who will give unbelievable theological studies on this appearance of how Jesus changed his countenance in a way and how he's unveiling something. And it's fascinating. And there's no harm in doing that as long as it's from sound, (laughs) reputable people who know the word. My intent this morning is not to unpack every single thing that we could unpack in this. So I just want to say that going forward. I will probably miss something that will come to your mind. Yes, what about this? I'm not neglecting it. I'm just simply looking at this to try to drive home that Jesus had a purpose as to why this transfiguration was taking place and how the disciples were to respond and react to what they saw. So look with me at verse 1, and it says that after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light and behold there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them then answered Peter and said unto Jesus Lord it is good for us to be here if thou wilt let us make here three tabernacles one for thee and one for Moses 
and one for Elias. Now, let's just stop and deal with these four verses. And verses one and two, I'm just going to simply give it the heading of the continued preparation of the disciples. The continued preparation of the disciples. The disciples to this point had not yet learned all the lessons that they needed to learn. There was more revelation being given to them. There was also more preparation being given to them. Remember, the apostles would have a ministry that would live beyond Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. They were being prepared for their apostolic ministry that would continue after his decease, after he left this world. The transfiguration of Christ, we're told here, was witnessed by only three men, Peter, James, and John. Now, there are varying opinions as to why these three were chosen. I'm not going to venture into that exactly today, but I will tell you that that's what the Bible declares. All three of the gospel accounts are in agreement that Peter, James, and John saw this transfiguration. It was not just an event that was shown to them so that they might be wowed or amazed. It was an event that was intended to bring them more understanding by preparing them for what was getting ready to occur. In other words, the transfiguration was not just meant to be something to wow them. Only three disciples witnessed this, but yet they are being equipped and prepared for the ministry which is to come. This event is recorded by Mark and by Luke. I'm going to make reference to Mark's account and Luke's account at some point today. And I will try to remember to tell you this is what it says in Luke. If you want to try to turn there, you can. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm just going to mention it briefly. But these three witnesses are more than sufficient for us to trust that what took place on this mount, which even the mount in which this took place in, is up for some debate. Some say it was Mount Hermon. Some say it was Mount Tabor or Mount Tabor. It really, for what we're talking about today, does not change the relevance of what's being said. But we do see three people after six days. Six days had passed since we saw the previous event. We don't know what happened in those six days. We're not told of any events. We're not told of any miracles. We're not told of any healing. We're just simply told that there are six days have elapsed since Jesus made that declaration that there are some of you standing here who shall not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So we're going to take God at his word, literally, and say after six days, here's what happens. These three witnesses behold something that no man to this point has seen since. This is an event that you and I have not seen. This is an event that even truly nobody has seen except these three witnesses. We're told about a brilliant appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I believe here is what's happening in this transfiguration is he is revealing his divine nature that had been hidden in the robes of his humanity. He did not change form in the sense that he, did, he didn't become something else. Now the word that's very important to understand here is the word transfigured. 
The word transfigured in the original is the word where we get the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, we think, and we remember back in our school days, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly completely changes form. However, in the original, based upon transfiguration, it doesn't exactly mean to change form entirely. It has the idea of moving across. In other words, he did not change form. His face still looked like his face. His clothes still looked like his clothes. But the brightness that comes is his divine nature for these brief moments is being revealed. He's pushing across, pushing aside for a moment his human side, his robe of humanity that we may be eyewitnesses to what Peter, James, and John saw. Now, we didn't see it with our eyes. We're reading the testimony of what happened. But this appearance is also accompanied, in a few moments we'll see, by the audible voice of God. God speaks from a cloud based upon the events that are unfolding. In other words, the transfiguration is not just one thing. The audible voice of God from a cloud goes right along with the transfiguration, this metamorphosis, this moving across my humanity in order that you might see my divine glory. But then, even more as astounding in many ways, is the bodily presence of Moses and Elijah. Can, can you even for a moment begin to think about what's happening here? This is a remarkable event. We have witnesses. Peter, James, and John. We have Old Testament saints who have long been gone who are there standing in presence bodily. It doesn't say it's their spirit. It doesn't say it's their ghost. It doesn't say any such thing. It says Moses and Elijah are standing there. And at the same time, the voice of God comes down and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son who is displaying His glory. He says, I am well pleased with Him. And then He says the most profound thing that I think He could ever say, Hear ye Him. That's evidence of what the purpose of the transfiguration was about is what the audible voice of God from the cloud says about what's going on in this transfiguration. So this brilliant event is taking place. Moses, who's representative of the law, we'll show you in a moment. Elijah, who represents the prophet, make this event one of the most amazing events that's recorded in Scripture. Yet it's often misunderstood. So we see what's happening here. The Bible says that his face did shine. His face is the same. His raiment was white as the light. Now we know Moses, we're talk, it talks about Moses in the Old Testament, how his face shined. And we'll also see the request that he made and he, he begged God to let me see your glory. 
And God told him, the only way you can even look my direction is to go into that rock, behind that rock. And he said, you can watch as I pass by. And it's not meant to be humorous, but it sometimes does. And he said, you can only see my back parts. Because no one can look at me and live. It's remarkable. It's not coincidence that Moses is one that is one of the two standing there in bodily presence. Again, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophet. Now Luke 9.32 tells us something that Matthew doesn't say. In verse 3 it says, Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with them. In Luke 9.32 it tells us that they had become heavy with sleep. Peter, James, and John were overtaken with sleep. Luke's account also tells us that the Lord, at the time that they were asleep, was praying. Matthew doesn't say and tell us that Jesus was praying, but Luke does. So the Lord is laboring in prayer on this mountaintop. And Luke, in his account, says that they were roused from their sleep by the voices of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and the brilliance of the light that appeared to come from or to radiate from the Lord's body through his clothes. So each one of these accounts gives us a little bit different of an idea or perspective of what's happening. Now, as you can imagine, as the disciples are trying to make sense of what they're seeing, as you and I would, we're trying to make sense. What am I, first of all, what am I hearing and what am I seeing? Because what they're hearing and seeing is unlike anything they've seen to this point. And we'll see how this event, again, Matthew doesn't give us quite as many details as Luke does. So as the disciples are struggling to take in what they see, Luke tells us, again, fills in some blanks that Matthew doesn't, what was this conversation about? Because Matthew makes no mention of what it was. He just says, he appeared unto them, Moses and Elias, talking with them. So the disciples arise from their sleep, Maybe they lift their head up and they look and they see a conversation going on and they can hear what it's about. Well, Luke 9.31 tells us exactly what the conversation was about. It was Christ talking about his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus was talking about his coming death and his going to the cross. What a conversation that must have been. He is talking to Moses and Elijah about his decease. Moses and Elias, or Elijah, are talking with the Lord about his imminent death. The very subject that the Lord, we saw in Matthew 16, had said, these are the things that must be so. The very thing that Peter said, Lord, let it not be so. Do not go. Do not let these things be. And that's when the Lord Jesus looks at Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Because to hinder the work of Jesus Christ's decease would be to hinder the entire purpose and plan of redemption. So we know this conversation is about Jesus going to the cross. Then notice what it tells us in verse 4. As is the usual, then 
answered Peter. Peter, as the proverbial spokesman, speaks up. Now again, we talked about this at 10 o'clock, about being careful about how to respond and how to speak in haste. I will say my position, I think the position of most commentators and most preachers would be that what Peter gets ready to say here is he doesn't fully comprehend what he's saying. In other words, he's responding to what his eyes are seeing and his ears are hearing, but what he's asking to be done doesn't make sense. So Peter felt the need to say something. We might say that Peter's mind had not yet caught up with his mouth. Ever been guilty of that before? But Luke 9.33 says about Peter's words, here's how we know that he didn't know what he was talking about, because it says, not knowing what he said. I love when you take the synoptic gospels together and you look at them because they compare Scripture with Scripture. They're their own commentary. So when we ask that question, well, how do you know that, preacher, what they were talking about? Because Luke tells us what they were talking about. How do you know that Peter didn't know what he was saying? Because Luke tells us he doesn't know what he's saying. And as a matter of fact, Peter's language that he uses in verse 4 might even sound a bit spiritual. We might even kind of get the impression, what's so bad about what he's saying? Well, because it's not much different than what he said about trying to hinder the Lord from going to Jerusalem. Because he's still thinking temporally. He's not thinking fully, spiritually, in the reality of what Jesus Christ has come to do. Now, Peter, no doubt, realizes there is a privilege of being present here. And he comments, and he comes up with his own idea of what should happen now. Look what he says. He says, Peter says unto Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. He says, this is a good thing. Moses and Elijah and you and us. But it's interesting that his plan only involves something to do with the three. He says, if thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter wants to put together some building for them, some place where they can reside. Now again, in the minds of the disciples and in the minds of the apostles, there's a lot different thoughts going on in their mind than what's going on in our mind. Remember, they're still trying to take in the temporal kingdom of God and the spiritual kingdom of God. They're still trying to put all these things together, but Peter doesn't really know what he's saying. He didn't realize the significance of the presence specifically of Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are not there, and this is important, are not there to share in the glory of Christ. In other words, we don't look at Jesus and say, the glory of Christ. Look at Moses, the glory of Christ. Look at Elijah, the glory of Christ, and say, all three of these are equally sharing in the glory of God. No. Moses and Elijah are there to testify. To testify of Christ's glory. Not to share in it. There's a tremendous difference in testifying of the glory of God and trying to share or take a part in the glory of God. 
Moses and Elijah were not God. There is no glory to be given to them. They appeared for a reason. Moses appears there as a representative of the law. Elijah appears there as a representative of the prophets. Now why this is important is because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law and to fulfill the promises that the prophets said the Messiah would be. Jesus Christ came and fulfilled the law perfectly. He was also the perfect prophetic answer to what the prophets were preaching about. He's, they're there for a reason. There's an agreement. There's a harmony with what the Lord is doing and what the Lord is saying. They're also there in obedience to Christ's work of redemption and salvation. This is not three equals, but rather this is a very graphic illustration of Jesus Christ being the end of the law, don't miss this, being the end of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets. That's why they're there. And that's what's going to make our Lord's, the Father's words from the cloud so powerfully, so powerful and impactful. Notice, after we get through what Peter says there, verse 5, where we started, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Most commentators agree that this bright cloud also is kind of a pointing back to the Shekinah glory, which we see in the Old Testament. That's a, that's a great study. Okay, we don't have time to go into all what the Shekinah glory was. But this bright cloud is comparatively speaking to that Shekinah glory. Um, it was used as a sign of God's presence among his people. Study the tabernacle, study the temple, you'll see that that's where that comes from. But notice it says that a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. The sudden voice of God completely settles the matter and confirmed Peter's earlier confession of Christ that we saw in Matthew 16. Peter declared... Thou art the Son of the living God. Thou art the Messiah. The audible voice from heaven, God the Father, is declaring, this is my beloved Son. It's the same terminology he used when John the Baptist baptized Jesus. He said, behold, this is the Son of God. This is a confirmation. It's a confirmation that not only is Jesus Christ who he said he is, but the presence of Moses and the presence of Elijah confirm exactly what has been said for generations about the Redeemer who would come. So out of this cloud that shines brightly, we hear the voice of God saying these words. God the Father here, of course, is reminding us about the uniqueness of Christ. He's demonstrating that he is only pleased in God that the Son is the only way of salvation and He is the only one who can bring eternal life. Jesus is identified by the Father's confirmation that this is the prophet. Don't miss this. This is beautiful. The, promise, the promised prophet that Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 18.15. 
And here's what it says. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him shall ye hearken. Moses' prophecy of Deuteronomy 18.15 is being fulfilled right before our eyes at the transfiguration. And God the Father is confirming everything that's happening. The beauty of Scripture. The beauty of Scripture knowing that everything that has said will happen, will happen. Moses at the end of that verse says, Unto him shall ye hearken. What does it mean to hearken? To hear, to listen. What does God the Father say about Jesus Christ whom he's pleased? Hear ye him. God the Father, again, doesn't say, hear Moses, hear Elijah, hear him. He who fulfilled the law of Moses. He who perfectly is the fulfillment of the prophets. It is Christ we have to hear. It's Christ we have to believe. It's Him we have to obey. Folks, it is not a stretch to say this other than the fact that God does not do this now. But if God were to speak audibly from heaven today, He would say one thing and one thing only about Jesus Christ. What do you think those words would be? Hear ye Him. Now that's not annulling and doing away with the law. That's not doing away with the prophets, and that's not doing away with the Old Testament, as some churches have done. They've said, listen, the Old Testament has no merit for us today. That's a tragic error. We see happening before us at the Transfiguration the very fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. And they point us to one person. Hear Him. If you're here today without Christ, it isn't hear the preacher it's hear him hear him speak whom the father says i'm well pleased whatever he says hear him this sudden voice of god settles this matter of course the disciples are watching this take place and they haven't spoken again since peter made mention of saying let's build these three tabernacles it's interesting to me that Jesus did not rebuke Peter in a sense, not the way he did when Peter tried to stand in front of him going to Jerusalem. But notice this in verse 6, and when the disciples heard it, heard what? The voice of God from heaven. They fell on their face and were sore afraid. The falling on the face is actually the true position of worship. Much of what goes on in our worship today is not even biblical worship. It's emotionalism. Now, I'm not saying God hasn't given you emotion. You should emotionally feel something about a Savior dying for you. You should feel some emotion. God's given us emotion. But emotions are not what drives a man on his face before God. It's the fear of God. It's the reality that they were in the presence of God and that voice was telling them, this Jesus, He is the fulfillment of everything you've heard. And in a tender moment here, it says they were sore afraid. And verse 7 says, and Jesus came and touched them. 
and said, Arise and be not afraid. What a reassuring statement. This was a statement of divine approval and of his delight. He doesn't rebuke Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, what a foolish man you were for wanting to build three tabernacles because the voice of God from the cloud, that bright cloud, while Jesus is pushed across his humanity that his divine glory might be seen, the men are naturally afraid at that. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, arise. And I still found this so profound that even after all of that, it says, and when they lifted up their eyes, their eyes were still face down, even though Jesus had said, do not be afraid. He had touched them. Their eyes were still too humble to look at him. And they lifted up their eyes. They saw no man save Jesus only. Moses gone. Elijah, gone. One standing there, only Jesus. Hear him, only Jesus. Do you see the beauty of this? Elijah and Moses, somehow, only in the way that God's mysteries had come back to this earth, but were now taken back to glory. There's no reason to read into the scriptures that this was a figment of their imagination. It's exactly what you see happened. There are mysteries about God that our mind still cannot fully comprehend. And yet the message that's being sent by the transfiguration of Christ is so clear only a, man to, only a man or woman who willingly wants to remain blind and deaf will not hear it and see it. God the Father says, hear Him. Those that are still dead in their trespasses and sins today, they need to hear Him. They need to hear what Jesus Christ is saying. They lift up their eyes. They no doubt must have looked around. They see nobody standing there but Jesus. What a testimony this is to the glory of Jesus Christ. By way of application, may it be our only desire to see Jesus only. May the Lord Jesus Christ be where our, com our comfort comes from, where our confidence comes from. Understanding that it is by His wounds we are healed. It's by His stripes that our acceptance with God is founded. He is the only way of salvation. There are so many voices. There are so many people saying, over here, listen over here, watch over here. As I mentioned to you earlier, you could go home today and log on to a YouTube channel and you could hear so many voices and you could see so many things and yet so much of it is false, it's heretical, and it certainly is not pointing you to hear Jesus. Some of your most influential preachers are not pointing you to Jesus. They're saying, listen to me. If you want to be successful, 
Listen to me. No, hear him. Hear Christ only. Now again, the disciples have seen all of this. Remember I began by saying there's still preparation needs to be done. You would think they have all the answers that they need and that their confusion has been completely alleviated. It's not gone yet. Notice what it says in verse 9, And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man. Now watch how specific Jesus is about this. Until the Son of Man, He's speaking of Himself, be risen again from the dead. He doesn't say, don't, <clears throat> don't ever speak about this, but do not speak about it until after my resurrection. That's when you could speak about it. But because they are still not yet completely understanding what's happening, notice their questioning goes on. Verse 10, And his disciples asked him, saying, why then say the scribes that Elias or Elijah must first come? Who was just there on the mountain? Elijah. The scribes had said that in, before the Messiah comes, Elijah must first come. Now because they are still not perfectly instructed in the doctrine of all that Christ is doing, Remember, Jesus has taught them many things. He even taught them using the illustration of Jonah being in the belly of the whale three days and three nights. How that he compared that to how he would have to spend three days and three nights in the earth. Folks, this is where humility comes in, where we begin to understand that no matter how spiritually enlightened we think we are, even the very best of the spiritually enlightened have to remember how careful we are have to be to completely understand some of these spiritual mysteries. Because we look at this and we say, what in the world is a matter? How do they not know? I'm going to jump ahead. How do they not know that the coming of Elijah was actually when John the Baptist came? They still didn't get it. That's what their question is about. Now we know that because John 1.21 says that the disciples, when they first saw John the Baptist, what was the question they asked him? Are you Elijah? They wanted to know if he was Elijah. That was not a random question. That was because the tradition of the Jews was that Elijah must first come before the Messiah. They are still imperfectly, imperfectly in understanding about what's happening here. It's based upon Malachi 4, verses 4 through 5 that tells us that before the coming of Messiah, Elijah should come. So the disciples, again, had that expectation when they asked John the Baptist. And here's what they asked him. Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. They wanted to know if, are you Elijah as the person we're supposed to be expecting? Now, friends, they're still a little bit blinded by that error because that's what they're asking here. They're saying, why then are they saying this? And Jesus, verse 11, answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. Jesus does not deny that Elijah must come. But remember, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. 
He was so much like Elijah, people thought he was him. He was so much like our Lord that people thought he was the Messiah. But what Jesus is confirming to them is that John the Baptist, and he says it in his wording here, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy. The disciples, now think about this, had just seen Elijah. So keep this air in your mind. They just saw him on the mount. How likely was it that their minds ran to the reality, is this the scene of Elijah that we were told about? <laughs> Isn't that... As a product of deduction, isn't that where you would arrive? Where you'd say, wait a minute, Elijah's to come. John the Baptist wasn't Elijah. We just saw Elijah. Was that it? And Jesus answers in only the way that he could answer. He says, but I say unto you. Now, Jesus used that phrase always to correct a wrong thinking. He would use it in an example of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say one thing, or he said, you've heard it said. And then Jesus would say, but I say unto you, so he's correcting the error. But I say unto you that Elias has come already. And they knew him not. Now the they is not just about the disciples. Mankind didn't know him. But have done unto him the reference here unto him is a reference to John, whatsoever they listed. See, when John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah preaching the message of repentance as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, what did they do with his message? They took off his head. They despised it. What's Jesus saying they're going to do to him? Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. The very same people that rejected the message of John the Baptist, who came in the spirit of Elijah, are going to do the same thing to me. Our Lord points to John the Baptist as the Elijah who was to come. Just as they killed him, Jesus says they're going to kill me. And then notice the end of verse 13, and this is encouraging. <laughs> Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Now what's interesting here is he never said to them, hey fellas, you know who I'm talking about. He never named John the Baptist. It just says they knew, they now understood who he was talking about. John the Baptist. You see the reality here, what Jesus is teaching us here and by way of an application is that when we think about eternity and we think about the plan and the purposes of God, eternity is a subject we can't ignore. It's a subject that we can only approach and have understanding of what the Scriptures say about those things which are to come. You see, there's a lot of voices in the world trying to tell you, here's what eternity is. Here's what God's purposes and plans are. But what does the Scripture say about eternity? Only when we start to understand the sobering reality of what Jesus Christ was coming to do can we have an understanding with our relationship to what time is. I don't know how long all of these events took from verse 1 to 13. I don't know if it was minutes. I don't know if it was hours. But I know when compared with eternity, 
It was brief. Jesus was not just teaching about temporal things. Remember, the Jews and even these disciples for the longest time believed what they were waiting for was his earthly kingdom to be set up. And Jesus was talking about eternal things. We live in a world that has an improper relationship to temporal things and eternal things. What I mean by that is we're living in a world that is more concerned about the temporal than we are the eternal things. Today to be here without Christ and to not see that Jesus Christ is not just about temporal prosperity. He is about things of eternity. That without Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity separated from Him with no chance of ever returning. We're more concerned about are we happy in this world today instead of is my eternal soul secure in Jesus Christ? Have I heard Him? Am I hearing Him? We want temporal bliss and we want to ignore the torments of a very real hell. How we view eternity is based upon how we view time, how we view today. If you and I are the sons of God, if we have been saved by the blood of Christ, then we truly are only living based upon the eternal merits of righteousness and the shed blood of Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. Jesus Christ was pointed to and confirmed by the Father that He is the only way of salvation. And that every other way will only lead to eternal destruction. We will somehow, again, theologians have tried to describe this, but we will live eternally, those who are in Christ, in the glory of Christ for all of eternity. I can't fully explain to you, humanly speaking, what that actually looks like. I know what they saw. I know what they heard. But living eternally in the glory of Christ, being like Him without sin, to see Him as He is, is a mystery you and I cannot fathom and completely comprehend yet. So we've got to be careful that we look at these men and we look at Scriptures and we say, why did these men not have understanding? How could they have been so blinded? Because there are eternal realities you and I still do not fully comprehend. You see, if we are the children of God here, we will be the children of God for all of eternity. If you are the children of wrath now, if you are outside of the body of Christ, if you do not repent of your sins and confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone, hear Him only, you will stay in that state as a child of wrath. But it will be because you refuse to hear. You say, I'm sitting here right now, preacher. What do I do? You beg God to allow you to hear. You beg God to open your eyes. 
You plead with him. Say, God, open my eyes to the truth of what is being said to me today. Take away the blinders that are on that are only seeing etern- the, st- the temporal things today and let me see eternity. You see, the reality is, is we are all held accountable to what we hear. You could have come today and you could have said, I have never read, heard about the transfiguration of Christ. I've never heard Jesus Christ being declared so clearly as the only way of salvation until today. And we're held accountable for what we hear. You hear him regarding eternity. We also hear Jesus regarding the gospel. The gospel is not preached until we tell men and women who Christ is. How do you tell people who Christ is? You talk about what Christ did. You explain why Christ did it. You explain where Christ is now. You see, the gospel is not just one, two, three, repeat after me. The gospel is a message that fully honors God's holy law. God would not and cannot ever tarnish His holy law to just let people in. God is standing, willing to be merciful, but His righteousness has to be established and His holy law has to be fulfilled. Who fulfilled the law? Jesus Christ fulfilled the law perfectly. I'm not asking you to trust in yourself. I'm asking you to trust in the righteousness and the fulfiller of the law, Jesus Christ Himself. He fulfilled it. He brought in an everlasting righteousness. Don't miss this. He lived in perfect obedience to the law. He is our representative. Secondly, the gospel is a declaration of satisfied justice. What is satisfied justice? That's the doctrine of substitution. What that means is, is Jesus Christ satisfied the demands of a holy, righteous God. The only acceptable sacrifice was the substitutionary sacrifice of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who we're being called to hear. That is the message of the Gospel. Christ has fully satisfied the penalty of sin for every believer. You can't add a single work to it. Thirdly, the gospel of God is a proclamation of salvation by grace alone. God would have all men to know that our standing before God is completely and totally a matter of free grace. You didn't earn it. You didn't pay for it. Nothing man does is acceptable to God apart from Jesus Christ. And it's only made available to us by His grace. Every concept, principle, idea of human merit or worthiness is the exact opposite message of the gospel. They don't coexist. Some of you will catch that. They do not coexist. Fourthly, the gospel of Christ is an announcement of that free grace freely bestowed 
There's no conditions for the sinner to meet. There's no works for the sinner to do. There's no amount of emotion for the sinner to feel to prepare you to believe on Christ. It doesn't have to look a certain way. You don't have to have a a certain countenance about you. But just as God the Father said, it's only Him you should hear. You have to come through Christ alone or you can't come at all. When we preach the Gospel, that's why we take a very firm stance that we invite any and all who will repent of their sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. We don't exclude a single sinner no matter what the sin is. Why do we do that? Because that's the Gospel. To say that I can reserve the Gospel for only certain people, I can reject you from hearing it, is the epitome of arrogance and pride. Because were it not for His free grace being bestowed upon us, we would also be lost and remaining a child of wrath. No sinner is excluded from the Gospel except those who exclude themselves by unbelief. If you die today and end up in hell, it's not God's fault. It's because you refuse to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Finally, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ declares the accomplishment of an eternal salvation. We have never nor will ever preach partial salvation. We will never say God's done His part Now meet God and do your part. We preach the true gospel, which preaches a mighty Savior who did and fulfilled the law, was a perfect fulfillment of the prophets, who came into this world, took on a robe of human flesh, never ceasing to be God, went to a cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us, died as a substitutionary sacrifice, the only sacrifice pleasing to God the Father. And upon that cross, He accomplished eternal salvation. Not made it possible, accomplished it. So that if you boast, you can only boast in what was accomplished on the cross. And you can never say, I'm glad I did my part and God let me in. You did no part. God accomplished it all through His Son. We preach a Savior who doesn't temporarily save or partially save, but a Savior who saves to the uttermost and saves eternally. Jesus Christ is the one we must turn to. Jesus Christ is the one that can save the soul. It is only His blood, it's only His righteousness that can wash away the sin of man. And it's only His righteousness that can make you holy. It is what the Scriptures say that when God the Son presents His elect before the Father, He says they will be presented faultless before the throne. The only way you can be faultless is through the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ.
You trust Him now. Not just for temporal prosperity, but you trust Him for your eternal soul. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ and live eternally with Him. Reject Him and die and be eternally separated in the torment of hell forever. That's an unpleasant message, but that's the truth of God's Word. I'm asking you to simply, just like those disciples, take your mind off of temporal things and answer yourself the question, as that old hymn says, is it well with my soul? Because the only way it can be well is if your soul is resting in Jesus Christ alone. If it's resting in anything else, it's not at rest. It's subject to wrath. Will ye hear him today? God the Father is telling you, hear him. I trust that each one of us will do that today. Let's pray together.